So in professional sports, uh, they have something called the draft. Um, those of you who aren't familiar with this, every year the teams uh, of, a, of a particular sport will gather together and they'll take turns picking uh, athletes coming out of college. And the idea is uh, they're picking people who they think will help make their team succeed in that particular sport, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, uh, any of those kind of sports that do this. Um, with that goal in mind, you're going to pick people who are going to help your team succeed. Of course, then, what that means is these teams are evaluating these people based on sort of their statistics, their talents. Right? So they're going to be looking for athletes with a lot of ability, great potential, uh, who seem to have all the physical characteristics that are going to help your team succeed. Thing is, it regularly happens that the teams will draft an athlete to join their team, and that athlete looks great on paper, but once they join the team, it's not so great. They begin participating in the team, playing games, and you're like, oh, this is, this is not looking so good. <laughs> Soon you might even begin to realize, like, this guy is, is nowhere near what we thought he would be or she would be. Uh, it begins to look like a disaster. And what we have this morning with Saul is, is, is a similar type of feeling. Um, you know, last couple of weeks, you could say on paper, Saul has all the great statistics. Everything you can want for a king. Definitely a number one draft pick for being king of Israel. He's good looking. He's tall. He's from a wealthy family. Even you might say that his first achievement was a victory. He wins a big victory for Israel and says a lot of good things. All the right statistics, all the right signs to be a successful king of Israel. The thing is, as we begin this chapter, it's the first of, of many different incidents that will come that make us say, uh, maybe this guy won't turn out so well. Unfortunately, what we begin to see and what gets confirmed in the next couple of chapters is this is a guy who, who isn't going to measure up, who isn't going to be the king we had hoped he would be, at least how he seemed he would be on paper. So what happens with Saul? If you go back to that example of an athlete who's drafted, oftentimes what happens is, again, this is an athlete with all the right talents and skills, all the physical abilities that you could want. But what particularly happens is when they get in the game, but especially when they get into a difficult situation, right? When it's no longer sort of just throwing the ball around with nobody around you, but no, you're throwing the ball around and people are coming at you, right? When you're in a situation and the team is behind, you've got to lead them to victory. When they're in an actual situation with a lot of pressure and difficult circumstances, uh, that athlete, it turns out, doesn't handle it well. They make poor decisions. They get overwhelmed and mess up. They make big mistakes. What happens with Saul is we see him get into a pressure-packed situation, a situation that brings a lot of tension, um, a lot of difficulty, and he doesn't handle it well. Uh, he makes a pretty huge mistake. And, and, and what we want to see this morning, what I hope will lead us, I'll be able to lead us to see this morning, and the lesson that we'll take away is, is when we get in these kind of situations, when we get in difficult situations, situations of pressure, of tension, those are the moments when we're most tempted to trust in our own abilities, our own talents, what we got on paper. Whatever we got, we want to use those things to get control of those situations that, that feel out of control, when we feel that pressure and tension. And the lesson we want to learn this morning is it's in those moments, especially those moments, that we've got to turn to God. It's in those moments we most especially have to trust and obey the Lord. That's hopefully where we'll land this morning, but... Let's sort of begin where, where our passage begins. Where first couple of verses, we see that we are a couple years into the reign of Saul, two years to be exact. At this point, so he's been king. He has a standing army of about 3,000 people. 
One day his son Jonathan attacks a local outpost of the Philistines. The Philistines are a nation that Israel's been in conflict with many times over the years. Jonathan leads an attack against that outpost. He wins. The Philistines, of course, hear about it. You know they're going to respond, right? And so Saul knows this. He begins to rally his forces for uh, another bigger conflict that's going to come now with the Philistines. He rallies them at Gilgal. And as that happens, the Philistines, they rally their forces and, and they roll deep. Huge amount of them come up. Verse 5 of chapter 12, it says this. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Avon. That's a whole mess of people, right? <laughs> Saul, remember, he's got a standing army of 3,000. The Philistines have 36,000 people, chariots and, and, and horsemen. Now, Saul, it says he's rallying the people at Gilgal. And the reason he's doing that is because they are going to have basically a worship service, right? They're going to offer some offerings to the Lord, a worship service led by the prophet Samuel, and Samuel's going to lead them in seeking the Lord's guidance for what to do. That might seem a little strange. You're going to have a battle, and you're going to do a worship service, but this is one of the things that makes Israel distinct from all the other nations. And this is, this is something, actually, you could see in Israel's history. Whenever they're in times of crisis, uh, when they're about to make a bigger initiative or do something significant, God always wants them to come to him. These offerings and these other things is a way for them to come before the Lord and to say, we don't do anything before seeking the Lord. We've talked about this before. This is a very practical way to remind Israel and to remind the king that there is really only one real king, one real leader of Israel. It's the Lord God. Saul is a vice king. He's got the title king on paper, but in reality, he's a vice king. He is someone who serves under the direction of the Lord, which comes through the prophet Samuel. To do this, before, here's this huge battle and all the things they want to do. Here's a way to show, ultimately, we seek God and what he wants. We look to him. We depend on him. And that's why they do this. All of Israel, and the king particularly, submits themselves to the Lord. And here's a way of doing that. So they're gathered at Gilgal, submission to the Lord to seek his direction. And the prophet of God, Samuel, so he's the one who's going to sort of lead them in this and, and direct them in this. That's how God had worked in this time period, sending his prophets to give his word to his people. Samuel says, don't do anything until I get there. I'm going to be there in seven days. It's not the first time Samuel has done this. So it's not sort of abnormal to sort of say, hey, I want you to get there. Wait there for a while, and then I'll be there. I'll be there in seven days. So one day goes by, then two, then three days. Verse 8 says, and he saw waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. So you can understand, like, the, the pressure, the, the tension of this situation. Philistine army, more than ten times bigger than Israel. I mean, they're, they're facing reality, and this is totally understandable. You're facing reality of course, you're going to feel overwhelmed, you're going to feel anxious, you're going to feel afraid, you're going to feel powerless. And so, of course, the people panic. And we see the response of the people. We sort of read the whole context here, verses 6 through 8 now. When the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. 
Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That's basically the opposite direction of where the Philistines were gathered. Now, the Philistines are here, like, we're going all the way over here. Saul was still a Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Here's what part we read. He waited seven days, a time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. So guess what happened? The people were scattering from him. Saul's looking out, and what's he saying? The people are leaving, they're shrinking, the Philistines are on the move, they're like, we can't, the, the people are afraid, things are, seem to be falling apart, Samuel's still not there. So Saul decides, I can't wait anymore. I've got to do something now. Verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So Samuel did arrive. It seems like it was on the seventh day, the last moment, but he did arrive in seven days, some point in that day. And if you're thinking Samuel's not going to be happy, uh, you'd be right. Uh, I mean, here's Saul. He's coming out. Hey, bro, what's good? You know, everything's fine. How you doing? Saul acting like everything's fine. But here's what Samuel says, verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and you did not come within the days appointed, that the Philistines had mustered a mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. By the way, this ends up being a bad habit for, for Saul. We'll see that he, he does something wrong. Instead of admitting it, he often makes excuses. And what we see here, I mean, this is like prime A excuse, right? There's a lot we're going to draw from here. If you want to know the sort of the, the ins and outs of excuse making, the, the anatomy of, of excuses, here, here's, here it is. Here's, there's at least three things we see here, things uh, many of us have done, things I've done, right? The first thing he does is self-justification. When in excuses, when we do something we shouldn't do, we, we, we justify it, right? I know I did this wrong thing, but I had a good reason for it. The people were scattering from me. The Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal. Here's these things that are going to happen. So that's why I did what was, I was clearly told not to do. You know, more than a few times for me, I, I've been uh, more than a few minutes late leaving here to go home, right? And let me just admit, well, it's not just here. It's a lot of places I go to. I've been <laughs> more than a few minutes late. And, and the thing is, every single time, my first instinct is to text ahead and give my excuses, right? There's traffic. I don't need to finish email. I had just, just different things I need to do. And they make a lot of sense in my mind, like good sense. I'm a pretty smart guy, so they're logically tight. They make sense. Like you, you would be like, oh, that's, that's good reasoning. But, but the reality is, <laughs> the reality is what I'm doing is explaining why I did not do something or why I failed to do something, why I, I did something I should not have done, something I promised I wouldn't do. I'm going to be here at this certain time, right? It's self-justification, isn't it? When we make excuses for things that we do that we shouldn't do or our failure to do some things that we should do, we use this a lot. Pile a lot of reasons, right, to bury the sin that's underneath it. Number two, we see blame shifting here. This is really your fault. You did not come within the days appointed. And the you here in the Hebrew is emphatic. It's like, you, you, Samuel, you were supposed to be here and you weren't. Now, Actually, he was there, I mean, late on the seventh day, right? Last moment, but he did say it's going to take seven days. But he still says, he shifts the blame, right? 
there's pressure in the situation, there's tension, there's difficulty, it feels overwhelming. The people are running away. You didn't come, so that's why I did this. You know, today, like, we might call this gaslighting, right? Um, you're, the blame. you're the blame for why I got angry. You're the blame for why I snuck out. You're the blame for why I didn't show up, why I neglected you and ignored you. You're the blame for why I didn't turn in that assignment on time. You're the blame for why I let you down. You're the blame for why I acted this way. It's you, right? Whoever you is, parents, friends, teachers, coaches, coworkers, bosses, clients. It's really you, right? I know I did this thing, but it's really you. We shift the blame to make excuses for the ways in which we sin. We go against the things that God calls us to. Third thing I think you see here from Saul is I call it sort of good ends uh, to justify bad means, right? Here's a good thing that I'm bringing up, I'm looking for, and so it justifies the many bad things I'm doing. He says here, look, I was just trying to please God. That's a good thing, a good end, a spiritual thing. So I forced myself, verse 12, to disobey God's command. I forced myself because of a very good thing, which we all want, to seek the favor of the Lord. This is kind of, some people might call this religiosity, right? Which is a sense of like this desire to be, to say we're religious, right? We're doing good things for God. We're showing up at the places we need to. We're doing the things that, that we're supposed to do, right? All that kind of things. All the religious things to excuse our bad attitudes, our bad choices, our bad habits. We act sinful, but it's okay if we put some religious frosting on it, right? Some, 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 some vaguely religious frosting on it. Some, say some spiritual things, do some spiritual things, show up at the holidays, do all that kind of stuff. Put enough religious frosting to justify the bad attitudes, the bad choices, the bad things we're doing. There's a lot, right? There's a lot happening here with Saul and this excuse. Um, but let's, let's remember... All the things we just sort of listed, the self-justification, the blame-shifting, sort, of, uh, sort of using bad, bad means to justify what we say is a good end, all those things, remember what it comes from. It comes from, I would argue, Saul feeling anxious. Saul being in a position of tension, I think, uh, being afraid. I mean, it mentions he sees the people scattering from him, right? The Philistines are coming. Samuel's not there. What... what what I'm saying is Saul feels out of control of this situation. And so he wants to do whatever it takes to take control, even if it leads to disobeying God. See, the thing is, in times of crisis, of tension, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel scared, when we feel uncertain, we're in a situation that we don't particularly like, and it brings all these feelings within us. When those things happen, that's when we try to take control. We try to change things. We want to do whatever we can to change that situation to make it better, to make it fit what we want. So we lose our temper in order to get the kids to quiet down or to, to win a spiraling argument with our spouse. That is a feeling of uncertainty, of tension, dealing with a spouse, uh, dealing with kids. And so we lose our temper or we start insulting or doing whatever it takes to get it back to where we want it to be. Maybe you go along with what your friends want you to do and pick the area, whether it's sex, alcohol, drugs, or something else, some, something, we're going to go along with everyone else and do the things that everyone says we, want, we need to do but we don't really want to do, but we do them because we don't like the feeling of not being in the center of whatever social circle we're in. That feels uncomfortable. That feels uncertain. I don't like that. So we go along with it. We, 
Maybe you feel shame or guilt or worry about something that's happening now or something that's happening in the future. And so um, in order to, to take control of the situation, to, to remove that, you deal with it by maybe spending a lot of money or you become obsessive about food or you begin working out obsessively or you begin working a lot of hours. All these different things we do can to deal with whatever sense of uncertainty or tension we feel in that situation. And look, let's, let's admit, this is hard, isn't it? It is hard to sit in tension and uncertainty. It is hard to face the pressures that come around us in particular times of our life that always will be there and the discomfort that happens and the possibility of failure. The possibility that you won't win. Something will, will dissolve. A relationship won't be there where you want it to be. Uh, the, the, the money that you want to have won't be there. The, the, whatever it is. And that's why we do the things that we do. I want you to understand, the things that you do, however you act out, whatever, whatever ways you do to act out, that doesn't come out of nowhere. We do the things we do based on how we feel in our certain situations. And particularly in those situations, in these particular situations that are tense, that are pressure-packed, that are difficult, what we tend to do is the things that help us feel back in control. And we justify it. Things that allow us to change the things in the short term, right? And I say that very deliberately. It can change things in the short term, but it damages us in the long term. In fact, it kills us in the long term. This makes me think of a, of a book uh, called Of Mice and Men, where there's a main character called Lenny. Uh, Lenny is a simple guy we would call mentally challenged today, right? A lot of mental challenges, very simple-minded. He has a very bad habit of of taking animals and, and hugging them so tight that he kills them, right? Um, he's that strong, but he's almost like a mind of a, of a, of a toddler. Uh, he tends, up, tends to kill animals uh, that, he, that he picks up and keeps as pets. And so the, the tragic ending here, and so spoiler alert for those of you who haven't taken sophomore English, <laughs> or, um, or if you're, you have a final and you want to know the end, I'm helping you out, you're welcome. Uh, so what happens is... Uh, Towards the end of the, of the book, there's a woman who fortuitously asks him to stroke her hair. Um, and so he does that, and she becomes a little panicked. She, she didn't realize how strong he is as he's aggressively stroking her hair. So she starts to scream, and he's feeling out of control, tries to get control of the situation. He breaks her neck. He kills her. So the situation is resolved, right? But she's dead. He used his strength to deal with this screaming woman who's in front of him, and he didn't know how, what else to do. You know, in the same way, I think our efforts to resolve the things in our life, the things that we don't like, again, the things that feel uncertain, full of tension and pressure, we act like Lenny, except the thing that we break and kill is our own soul. Because what we do is, if you, what happens in situations of tension, of difficulty and pressure is whatever you use to get control of that situation, the more you do that and the, way, the more you continue to do that, you become defined by that thing. That becomes who you are. And so the more you use anger to deal with situations of difficulty and stress and those kind of things, you end up becoming fundamentally an angry person all the time, right? Because it becomes the thing that you do, right? That becomes that, that, that. There's a, there's a good type of anger that you should have, but the reason in which you use the anger badly to take control of things, it takes over your life. Maybe you're using your looks. Maybe you're using certain, whatever obsessions you have or addictions you go into. Whatever it is that you use, um, 
whatever it is you reach for to make you feel back in control of things. Whatever it is, whatever things you're going to go along with, whatever things you're going to fill and take in your life, they become who you are. You become defined by those things. It becomes all who you are. You become, well, you, become, well, you become overwhelmed by those things in a way that it almost kills all the other characteristics in your life. It kills you. It kills your soul. And again, uh, what's interesting here is it can be good things, right? I know people who are in ministry right, and doing good ministry, and yet their desire to be in control makes them defined by that thing in a way that perverts them and that destroys all the things. Well, I should say, I said destroys your soul. It doesn't just destroy your soul. It destroys the relationships and all those around you. The more you have to go to those things to feel like you can take control of the situations of your life. Those are the negative consequences. Let's finish up, see what happens with Saul here. Saul, uh, Samuel says to Saul in verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord will have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So God doesn't, notice he doesn't take the kingship away from Saul. But what he's basically saying is it's not going to be passed down to your son. There's not going to be a Saul dynasty here. The leadership of God's people will be given to another person, which we'll learn about in the next couple chapters. But clearly what we see here is Saul did not keep the command of the Lord. And this is what God calls us to do. What's God's command to us? Trust and obey him. Trust and obey him. Trust and obey him in all circumstances, but especially, and that's what we're emphasizing this morning, especially when it feels tense and overwhelming and difficult. To trust and obey him, even if it doesn't bring immediate success and approval. To trust and obey him, even if what we want stays out of reach and seems to be moving farther away from us. God still calls us to trust and obey him. Listen to me. Trust and obey me. How do we do this? How do we trust and obey God? I mean, as I said, this is difficult. It is difficult to sit in the tension and the uncertainty and the pressure and the difficulty. It is difficult to stay there. We want to resolve it. However, an hour seems too long, much less a day, much less a week or months or, God forbid, years. How do we do that? Well, I think we first have to start off being a little more suspect of ourselves. There's a lot of you here with great talents and skills and resources. I know a lot of you, I mean, one or a few of you are actually pretty good looking too, right? I mean, it's, it's true, right? You've got a lot going on for you. And the temptation is to depend on those things and to use those things and to make those things the God of your life, the God who can take control. I'm going to use this, whatever it is. However, however you, whatever defines you on paper, whatever you most instantly go to, and whatever you then use as an excuse to justify what you do, whatever that thing is, it's easy for us to use it to take control, yes, of that conversation, of that relationship, of that situation. Whatever that thing is that you often go to to resolve those feelings, that way is death. And you almost, I almost want you this morning to just wake up and realize what's happening to you and what's happening even to the people around you to the degree in which you go to those things. That's what Saul does, and you'll continue to see him do it. In fact, it's interesting how Saul becomes more paranoid, more 
give it to temper tantrums, more, all these different things that he did not have before. Why, what happened? He began to say, this is the, he began to, he kept going to those things to help him resolve whatever situation he's in and became defined by that. This is the way of death. We need to be more suspect of how we depend on those things and instead, we need to approach the situations of our life. Hear this, not by what we see, but what we believe. Approach our life not by what we see, but what we believe. Because what you see in front of you, yes, will feel overwhelming, it will make you anxious, unsure, uncertain, upset, and that can lead you to do the things that make you think you can be in control, but in fact put you far away from God and kill your soul and those around you. What you believe, however, if you're driven not so much by what you see, but what you believe. And if what you believe is that there is a God who is trustworthy and reliable, that there is a God who is guaranteed to lead you every single time in any situation, whatever you face, if that's what you believe and you believe this and you know this because God's track record is he never abandons anyone who stays with him and leads him. If that's what you believe, that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. If you believe that, that's why then you can say to yourself what the psalmist says in Psalm 42. Listen to what the psalmist says. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If what you believe is this, I have a God and he's my God. I have a salvation and it's my salvation. The key word here is my, isn't it? That in the midst of turmoil, the midst of being cast down, you need to say something to your soul that is raging out of control, that wants to do something. You need the words that will pierce through to your own soul and mind. Here's those words. My salvation, my God. And the reason it's my is because God has given us himself. He's given himself to us in Jesus. The reason it's not the God up there and it's my God, the reason it's not the salvation somewhere out there but it's my salvation is because God said, I'm giving you myself and I'm giving you a personal salvation and I've done it in Jesus. The God has come to us in Christ and because of Jesus, we now have what the Bible says, a cornerstone in our life, a rock a foundation, something that lands right in the center of our gut and our soul, something that we can depend on no matter what rages around us. That God is no longer distant from us. We no longer have to imagine what a God and a salvation can be. We can say there is a my God and my salvation for me because of Jesus, and it's a rock that I can depend on. It's the reason then we can say trust and obey God. I say trust and obey God not because God is somewhere out there. We're waiting for him to come. The difference between us and, and, and Saul is that Jesus is already here with us. He's saying, trust and obey God because you have trusted in me. You've relied on me. Especially when we're cast down and in turmoil, here's what we say to our souls. Here's what roots us and grounds us. Now, right now in our church, there's so many different situations. I know some of them personally. You others know others as well. So many different situations of turmoil, of feeling cast down. And holiday season sometimes brings that out a lot more, doesn't it? It brings it out. More aware of the situations in our life that bring in pressure and tension. What are we going to do in the midst of all that? Well, here's the key. 
It's to believe that in Jesus, God is now my God and your God. That in Jesus, salvation is my salvation and your salvation. When you have that, that brings you to a different response. Not of panic and excuse making, but of hope and praise. We can panic and then do things that we have to self-justify and make excuses for and blame shift and all the different things and it becomes its own mess and swamp. What God is inviting us into is a place of hope and praise. A place of confidence knowing that God has never abandoned anyone who's trusted and obeyed him. He's showed us that in Jesus. Throughout human history, we have to trust and obey that God would resolve the situation we got ourselves into in the Garden of Eden. Which we stop listening to him, we disobeyed him. What would God do? And God has done it already in Christ. Let's pray that God would help us, first of all, to, to realize there's the things that we have that we use to take control, they, they, they don't work. <laughs> He's already given us himself and his salvation in Christ. Let's hope and praise him for that. And know that where he will lead us will always result in great good for us forever. Amen. Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for the opportunity to be together, and thank you, Lord, that in any and all circumstances, we can trust you and obey you, but especially in those circumstances where we're most tempted to not do so. And Lord, we, we look into the things around us or the things that we have been given or gifted, and, and we think that's what will help us resolve the situations that we face. Um, Lord, uh, pierce through that lie. Lord, help us, Lord, even if some of us, Lord, have been, Lord, taking control of whatever is making us feel anxious or tense or whatever it might be, or upset or out of control, whatever it is, help us to see, Lord, that those things aren't good gods for us. Help us to see how those things are taking over our lives, how it's affecting the things and people around us. And lead us, Lord, instead to the place of hope and praise. Thank you, Lord. You recognize, yes, our souls can be in turmoil and cast down. But, Lord, there is a my God and my salvation for us. Lord, it's in Jesus. So, Lord, remind us, Lord, of our faith in Christ. For those who don't have faith in you, Lord, help them to see that there is no rock, no rock like the rock that is Jesus. There is no safety and confidence like Jesus because Jesus, you are God with us. And Lord, as that sort of grounds us and secures us, Lord God, help us then to, to obey you and to trust you, to do the things, Lord, that you call us to do, Lord, even if it costs us. Because recognizing, Lord, whatever it costs us is nothing compared to, as the Bible says, the weight of glory. All that we have in you, all that we have in you now and all that you're leading us to. So, Lord, uh, encourage our hearts as we pray this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.